recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 33 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter, and you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to us on YouTube or SoundCloud if you prefer. And most important of all, please sign up for our new newsletter and you'll get updates when new episodes drop and other show information. You can find that at prlawpodcast.club. Hello, Ewan. Hello, Cameron. What's going on? Not much. Uh, yeah, it's we're going under uh, not a lockdown, but we've had an increase in COVID cases here. I think I mentioned last week that there was going to be this bubble with Singapore. Well, our, our case numbers have gone up to like 45 55 per day, uh, which I think for most of the world, that would be wonderful as a total. But for here, that's very high. And so it's been put on hold again. It's like COVID is rearing its ugly head once again. Well, we are on lockdown, Cam. Actually, today is day one of new lockdown for the city of Toronto. So what does that mean? Uh, yeah, we've been doing like 1,500 cases wow. a day. Our numbers have been, have just been crazy. Um Hence, yeah, hence the lockdown for the city of Toronto. So, you know, I mean, our schools and childcare centers, kind of essential services stuff remains open. But I mean, other than that, pretty much everything is is closed down. Yeah, this, you know, and it's interesting because in China, there's been a couple of new cases as well that popped up in Shanghai. And there were some people online in China saying, you know, like, we're, we're not going to go home for Chinese New Year just to try and be safe. And then somebody posted to a tweet that an American published who said, you know, we understand there's a risk here, but we're all going home for Thanksgiving and we're all going to fly there and we're all just going to live our lives. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And there's so few cases in China that actually it's safe really to do anything, but they're still being careful. And I thought this is such, it's so symbolic of the different ways of thinking in these two countries about this virus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, we, we sort of went through a similar thing here too where the government was saying look don't travel during thanksgiving stay home don't get together with family members and that means we might get to have a christmas and it looks like not very many people uh listened to that request because we within a few weeks of course of the thanksgiving long weekend here in canada which to listeners who aren't in North America, um, our Thanksgiving is held uh, much earlier than, than the Thanksgiving in the United States. But anyway, um, yeah, and our numbers spiked within within a few weeks, and they haven't really come down since, Cam. Yeah, it is going to be a big problem at Christmas time. I mean, I think it affects you directly, affects me directly. Like, I'm not going to be able to go back to Canada this year. Uh, and nobody can come out here either. And so it's literally going to be the first Christmas I've spent in Hong Kong. I've been in Asia for Christmas before, but not here. And uh, I'm trying to make the best of it. We're going to do, I think, of a, a Christmas party here at some point. So we'll try and uh, make it as cheerful as we can, even if it won't quite be the same. Yeah, I think, you know what, though? That's the right way to deal with it. I mean, just come to terms with reality, right? We're the 20, it's, you know what, 23rd of November, 
we've still got a little bit of time. So try and wrap your head around that idea now and make whatever preparations you need to make. And yeah, just stay home. Be safe. Well said. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, you and what do you have in store today? Cameron, I wanted to talk about uh, time theft. Now, time theft, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this this notion, this idea that um, employees claim to be working but are actually doing other things, surfing the internet, not at their workstations, going for walks. Which I think cetera, everybody cetera. everybody has done at some point. Absolutely, right? Uh, and, you know, look, the reason I wanted to talk about this Cam is because I read an article last week by a prominent Canadian labor and employment lawyer who shall remain nameless. I don't want to draw any further attention to it, uh, alleging that working from home has resulted in this disturbing trend, an increase of time theft among employees. Um, you know, the article alleges that employees are misleading their employers about where they are and what they're doing. And that the fact that so many more employees are working at home right now, um, that, you know, this is just instance, instances of uh, time theft have, have spiked. The problem is, Cam, there's no evidence. I was just going to ask that. How do we know? Not a scintilla of evidence was provided to support this thesis in this article. I mean, literally nothing. There's nothing there. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm a little upset about this because it, it really does a disservice to employers and employees alike. It also takes away from the credibility of what we do as lawyers, where, you know, the essence of of our of our profession is based in fact and law and not opinion. Our opinions are rendered from fact and law. Um, and so the idea that someone with, you know, with that kind of audience would just make this argument, particularly during a pandemic, particularly while a lot of employers are struggling to stay afloat, while a lot of employees are struggling to stay afloat. It's a very, very difficult time for for everyone. And, you know, I, I was going to just leave this and not even discuss it, but I saw that the story gained a fair amount of traction in the U.S. as well, Cam. Um, you know, a number of prominent U.S. executives started chiming in on the story. And what was interesting is that unanimously, um, everyone was in in strong opposition to this idea that employees are taking advantage of their employers right now, um, when much of the evidence strongly uh, suggests otherwise. So let's get into the, the nuts and bolts of this a little bit. Um, what can employers do to ensure that their employees are not um, sort of just wasting time at home? And then what can employees do to give the companies confidence that they are getting work done? Now, this this is assuming that they're not, right? But I think most people are getting work done. But I suspect that a lot of managers may think this way, the way the author thinks about this. And I'm just wondering what you would advise companies to do if they had those suspicions. 
Yeah, and and look, fair enough. I'm not I'm not suggesting that this doesn't happen. Of course it of course it happens. But I mean, to what to what end, right? And I mean, in terms of what can employers do? Well, you know, one of the things employers can do is try and embrace that notion of alternate work arrangements and working from home. And a, a lot of companies are, are trying to learn this on the fly because they've been operating bricks and mortar operations where people have physically come in on a day-to-day basis and they haven't really taken the time to sit down and develop policy around this sort of thing. So, you know, I think employers really have to sit down, sit down with counsel, sit down with their, their HR representatives and try and develop you know, a clear policy and procedure for, for working from home, because, you know, again, this is difficult. It's difficult for a lot of employers. It's difficult for a lot of employees, particularly older employees, Cam. And, you know, and having spoken with employer clients, this seems to be the trend that, that, that I've seen anyway, is that this is much more difficult for older employees who are much more accustomed to, you know, a physical workspace, younger employees, they seem to be faring better. And I think that that kind of just makes logical sense. I mean, their worlds have been wrapped up in, in tech and text and instant messaging for some time that this doesn't really pose a significant adjustment for, for them in particular. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I think, um, you know, the way I look at this, if I was, again, working in-house uh, at a company and advising sort of the internal communications team, it really would be along the same lines as what I just said off the top about Christmas. Like, this isn't ideal, what's happening this year. It's going to be difficult. But let's kind of change our perspective and say, well, let's try and make the best of it. And, and you know, what's unique about this that's a positive thing? And I think uh, thinking about work from home this way could be beneficial because the employer could, for instance, maybe supply, you know, high, high-end webcams for, for staff. Maybe they can provide some some funds or online tutorials for those older staff that you're talking about who might be struggling. Like there, there are ways to say, okay, this is the way we're going. Let's make it comfortable for the employee. Let's get them excited about this. Let's get them comfortable and more confident in what they're doing and provide that sort of support because then I think you'd get a lot more out of it in terms of productivity. Yeah, I completely agree. And look, I think, you know, the big thing here is communication, right? I mean, employers, HR reps, and they need to be communicating regularly with their staff, particularly right now um, for those for those companies where their employees are, are working from home. You know, you can do things like have check in video calls, have, you know, office hours, quote unquote, with with bosses where they are available virtually through a video call to check in. I mean, in 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 some respects, there are opportunities here to have greater access to to top level employees um, by nature of the fact that you can sort of schedule video calls, these sorts of things set up um, structure and infrastructure to encourage employees to communicate with each other as well. Right, Kim? And and I think, you know, you talk about training of some of these tech products, but things like Slack programs like Slack, Mm -hmm. you know, Microsoft Teams, these can be when used properly. And, you know, we could probably do a whole show on how on how they're frequently not used properly. But when they are, they can be really great communication tools and can really kind of effectively help to keep employees apprised of what's going on, uh, keep them in touch with their colleagues and, and ultimately keep them motivated. Yeah. You know, I'm on um, I'm membership of this sort of. 
software club. That sounds like the nerdiest thing ever. But basically, uh, from time to time, they sort of release some new software to test out. And oftentimes it's for, you know, remote workers or for a company that's looking for software to help bring these remote workers together. And in, in one instance, I was just reading through the comments and reviews and there were questions saying, like, don't you have screen tracking or screen recording capability? And I thought, that's kind of creepy. I can't imagine a company recording your screen as you're working. And then as I scrolled down, there was another question and another and another. And then more people said, well, like I'm using this other service that does allow me to screen record for my staff. And if you don't bring that in, I'm not going to switch. And I thought, this must be way more widespread than I'm aware of. And to me, that seems incredibly intrusive to have your screen videotaped as you worked to ensure that you didn't visit certain websites or or play solitaire or whatever it might be. Uh, that's a bad sign if that's caught on. Yeah. And, you know, you raise a really good point here, Cam, where we're talking about the practical and the legal. And we often talk about that dichotomy on the show, right? Where what's happening practically and then what what's happening legally or can be happening legally. And really, we've got a situation here where the tech and the employment environments, they're moving and starting to move at a pace that really the legal frameworks can't keep up with. We've got employers that are introducing, in some cases, all kinds of surveillance policies. Are, are, are they legal? Is there, is there even a legal framework um, that, that exists or, or a scope under you know, something like an Employment Standards Act or um, a human rights code to address some of this stuff? And you know, it's really difficult for the legal framework to keep up. And, and it needs to, Cam, because, I mean, look, we know that that notion, at least in, in, in many professions, you know, it, admittedly, there, are, there will be those professions where individuals always will have to physically attend the workspace. This isn't even an, an option in some cases. But in a lot of others, that traditional workspace, you know, it's quickly eroding. And that idea of punching in at 9 a.m. and punching out at, at 5 p.m., it's outdated and it's inefficient. And that means we need to create contemporary metrics for success and productivity as well, right? I mean, if you have an employee who wants to take a break cam from, you know, say three or four in the afternoon or something to pick up their child from school um, and instead is going to work an additional hour in the evening after their child's gone to bed. I mean, the work environment and the employment structure should be able to accommodate that, right? I think there's, I mean, obviously different categories of work, right? I mean, I think a lot of jobs are, you know, punch in a certain time and leave at a certain time. I'm thinking service industry jobs or even things like construction or, or, or stuff like that. Um, and, and that makes sense. I think what you're referring to is sort of, I hate to use this term, but like the knowledge economy where, you know, it's your ability to think and, uh, and your knowledge and your experience and, and various sort of skills um, that is no longer confined to a certain number of hours or a certain time of day. And, and I've said this for many years now. Um, I don't mind this. I think what you're, what you just said scares a lot of people that, you know, the, the morning, the nine to, to five, you know, is, is, is no longer relevant. I think that does scare people because when they hear that, they hear they're going to have to work a lot more than just nine to five. And I think what you mean is it's got to be more balanced. And this is how 
I, I have felt for a long time, I do put in a lot of extra hours. I'm a manager. I'm kind of expected to. I don't get time and a half pay or anything like that. It's just I'm expected to to manage my team and get my my job complete. And that's all I'm just, how I do that. They kind of don't care. Um, but that often means I'm working evenings or weekends. Now, that should also mean, like what you said, if there's a doctor appointment or uh, I need to get a haircut or whatever it might be, pick somebody up, you know, at the airport, whatever, I should be able to just hop out and do that without any problem, uh, even though it's during the workday. Because if work is going to come into kind of all aspects of our life, then we have to be able to push it out of certain aspects when we need to. And that's the give that we need employers to, to provide. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and look, I mean, let's be honest here and let's be realistic. We know that employees are working more. You know, I saw there was a great study um, that was published last week for in Australia. This was Australia's Institute Center for Future Work. And it was a survey that found that unpaid hours had increased from 4.6 hours a week last year to 5.25 hours, despite the total hours falling. So, I mean, that translated cam into an average of 273 hours per worker per year across all forms of employment that that's been unpaid. And this is largely the result of people working from home in a, in a pandemic. So, you know, that's sort of the first point, the idea that employees are working fewer hours. It's a myth. They're not working fewer hours. They're actually working longer hours. So, you know, I think we have to address that issue first. How are we going to establish that equilibrium in, you know, a work from home environment? But I think, you know, the second point is, Cam, is that, you know, top talent are going to start looking for flexible work arrangements. They are, they are already. And, you know, I, I, I saw a report by the World Economic Forum that said that um, nearly two-thirds of candidates say that having a choice of work location is a key consideration when choosing their employer. So, I mean, you know, in, in other words, the companies that aren't going to and are reluctant to embrace flexible working arrangements, they're going to find themselves at a disadvantage when looking to attract that that top talent. I'm I'm less worried about top talent though, just because they're going to have some bargaining advantage, some leverage because they are top talent. It's kind of everybody else uh, that doesn't have the same leverage that can be exploited, and I think that probably is happening uh, now in the pandemic because millions of people have been laid off and the economy is in a very difficult time. So uh, now's a time when employees really need to cling to those jobs, and I think the employers, you know, can 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 abuse that uh, sometimes. But on the on the second point, I wanted to to mention the other part about working at home that has changed things. Um, you know, you know, we had Simon Murphy from Edelman on the podcast uh, last or two weeks ago now, I guess. And him and I were speaking about this because he took a, a sick day from work. Uh, and he said it was odd because there was now an expectation that just being at home, that you can still get a lot of work done because we'd been working from home for so long. And we had, you know, a similar case in Hong Kong. We get typhoons. Usually every every summer we have two or three days off for typhoons that come through. And it was the same thing. This year was different. There was much more of an expectation that everything continues on these days because we do have this experience now and this knowledge of working from home. And the end result is exactly what you said, just more. More hours worked cumulatively. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to have to address that somehow. And again, that's getting back to that idea of the practical and the legal. You know, eventually the legal will catch up on this, but it's going to take 
it's going to take time. I mean, there's no there's no way around that, largely because we're still trying to figure out um, what a work from home space in more traditional employment sectors looks like. Um, and until, you know, there's more policy developed around these issues that is reflected in the statutes that's reflected in the HR manuals who are trying to educate their, you know, their, their clients on, on good ways to structure work from home arrangements. This is going to take a great deal of time before we're in any sort of environment where we have a clear sense as to how this is supposed to work. But in the meantime, Cam, let's try and be a little more supportive of those employees who are really, really struggling to stay afloat rather than pointing fingers at, you know, some antiquated notion of what the employment sector in a day-to-day work life looks like and suggesting that because someone wants to take, you know, a 10-minute break to de-stress in the middle of their day, that they are somehow stealing time from their employer because that is just absolutely preposterous and it is completely out of touch with reality and it makes me want to make and throw out that okay boomer comment that I'm often so reluctant <laughs> to try and just throw into the mix because I think it's a low blow. <laughs> I, I do have one final question on this, Hewan. Like we talk about this is not not really a problem, not really happening. But what is a reasonable approach? Um, because complete trust really is just no checking in, no, no, no time sheets, no punch in, punch out, no anything. But I can understand why some employers would want some form of documentation, maybe not very specific, but but something like where is that line? I, I'm guessing you don't know, but but I'm going to throw the question to you anyway, like where <laughs> what's OK? Well, yeah, I mean, hey, that's that that's a great a great question. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, Cam. And this it depends so much from, you know, profession to profession, industry to industry. What is what is a typical employee's day to day look like? I mean, I think what we need to have is clear task allocation. I think that that's the smart way to sort of better evaluate your employees. So if if, you know, if there's a structure where an employee is assigned say 10 tasks in a given day um, and another employee is assigned 10 tasks in a given day and the tasks are relatively the same and one employee has them completed by noon and the other employee still, you know, hasn't completed them three and four days later. Well, you know, you've probably got a problem with one of those employees and then there are ways that you can address that. Then we get into sort of more traditional methods of, of discipline, right? I mean, you know, performance improvement plans. Of course, we had a whole episode where we talked about that if people want to go back and listen. Um, so, I, but I think that's a big thing. Let's have more task oriented work for employees where it's not so much, did you put in an eight hour day? It's, did you get the work done? Because ultimately that's really what employers want. They want to know that when they give tasks to a particular employee, that those tasks are going to be completed in a timely manner, in a timely manner. So I think we have to move more to a method of that where evaluation becomes a little bit more transparent than simply trying to, you know, monitor employees in every capacity of their work from home arrangement. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is how I work with with people who report to me directly. I'm very flexible on this. I trust they are adults. They can manage their time. I just want to make sure that what they deliver to me is of high quality. Outside of that, they can do whatever they please. 
help show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, all right, I'm going to tackle uh, a subject this week. I think, and it's, I'm only going to tackle part of this subject because actually it's probably a much bigger subject than, than people think it is. So I'm going to look kind of specifically at one, one area, and that is you and influencers. And I mean, we have the media out there, and you can, you've got journalists, and you've got TV shows, and you've got movies, uh, the traditional ways of you know, releasing a product or of communicating to your audience. But the issue of influencers is becoming huge. Uh, It's not just sort of a maybe alternative to think about if you're a young brand. It's increasingly becoming uh, something to consider even for large companies as well. Like you and in your world, in your life there, is there any point, like who would you consider influences your buying behavior like i know you're a music fan are there certain sort of columnists for instance who if they write something that that means something to you and that that would maybe spur some behavior on your part um yeah well maybe not so much specific journalists i mean you know i've i've followed pitchfork for a very very long time i also love gorilla versus bear which is a really really cool music blog that um talks about a lot of just really really off the map and off the beaten trail kind of kind of records that you won't come across otherwise so there's certain publications that i definitely trust in um i don't know about so much individuals per se though actually the blog is kind of a good example because it's still a non-traditional media outlet um but it's one that you trust and i think you know we're we're at an age now where there are a lot of websites or people on twitter or people on tiktok or wherever who do actually have credibility on these things and an audience um and it is relatively new i mean the pr industry often moves quite slowly and so this has been embraced like i say by some sort of younger brands or some more sort of um, conscious brands, I would say. But for most, it's still a very esoteric area um, that they haven't touched. So first off, I mean, for communications people, I think I think everyone listening knows we get things out there by either releasing a press release, you know, by by sending uh, something to a journalist, uh, by phone calls. We'll get on the phone and call a journalist and say, "Hey, we have this cool thing happening. Can you can you write about it?" Um, these sorts of things. Maybe a news conference if it's a, a big announcement or a phone call or something like that. Um, and that was that was it. Like that was really how how you got the word out into the community. Um, and we know social media has changed that a lot. Uh, that is now a really key way. And I, I, I think when I was at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, I mean, we were in the middle of sort of an M&A when we were purchasing the London Metal Exchange. And there were rumors that we were going to make an announcement regarding this in the market. And we went on Twitter and said, we have no event scheduled today. And that thing shot around the world. I mean, it was a tweet. It was one (laughs) sentence, but like, because it addressed something in the, in the old days, we would have had to like call each reporter to, to answer their question and say no, but we put out that tweet and it did all of it at once, um, which is really powerful actually. And it worked well for us then. Wow. That, 
That's very cool. So I want to take a look at a, a case study, sort of, and uh, and this is really to do with YouTube, which I think has become, you know, a beast entirely unto itself. Um, you know the Christopher Nolan movie Tenet. I, I do. I haven't uh, I haven't seen it, of course, because, you know, you had to go to the movie theater. And yes. It wasn't something I was particularly comfortable with at the time. Yes. So they have really followed a, a rather traditional rollout. You know, there were trailers uh, released, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan and, and the stars of the movie talked, appeared on talk shows uh, via Zoom because of the pandemic. Um, and, and they apparently had a nine figure budget for, for marketing uh, with 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 Tenet. And they did have one sort of unique part, which they, they, they released a trailer on Fortnite, Fortnite being that sort of epic video game that, that people play forever. But anyway, that film needed to make $800 million to break even. So since launch on August 12th, it has grossed $325 million. So not even 50%. Uh, it's right now a huge flop, at least from a box office perspective. Now, let's talk about Borat. September 9th, rumors were sort of leaked about a sequel to Borat. And again, this sort of thing does generate interest if it sort of comes out from here and there, but people aren't sure. People want to find out if it's real or not. Maybe they're getting excited. So that that right away is sort of a, a good way to begin. Um, Amazon announced that it would have the rights on October 23rd. And then Sasha Baron Cohen, Borat himself, uh, engaged in several non-traditional marketing activities. So first, he wished Katy Perry and Kim Kardashian happy birthday, sort of in a very jokey Borat uh, style. That video was released, did very well. Uh, he started a fake feud with Ariana Grande, and he forced Jimmy Kimmel to take off his pants uh, on Jimmy Kimmel Live. So these are creative, still a little bit traditional in sort of how they went, but there's another thing that he did, which really was groundbreaking. Sasha Baron Cohen partnered with two influencers, and I have to admit, Ewan, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not in my in my early 20s, so I have no idea who these people are. But there's two YouTube channels. One is called Doctor Lupo, and the other is David Dobrik. These two guys have insane audiences. So Doctor Lupo has uh, 1.75 million. Uh, subscribers on YouTube, 1.8 million on Twitter. So he actually streamed a conversation with Borat on Twitch. And I think I've brought up Twitch before on this show. Uh, Twitch is sort of the, the platform, it's now owned by Amazon, where gamers sit and play video games and they stream themselves playing video games, uh, you know, on the full screen with maybe their headshot in the corner. So you can actually see how they're reacting during the game. And this has become a huge deal. You and I'm not sure if any of this is familiar to you or not. Um, Borat. Yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with Borat actually <laughs> just before you continue, because and anecdotally, there was one very non-traditional, or I think you would agree, um, advertising method that he used here in the city of Toronto, which was he took a giant, he made a, a giant blow up doll of Borat and then put it on a on a ship that literally sailed <laughs> through, through, through the water uh, in, in, in downtown Toronto. Um, and I only know this because it ended up obviously trending on Twitter and people were posting videos and photos um, and it was ridiculous. And I, I can't recall ever seeing anything like that to promote uh, a film product. That, that is amazing. And you're right. If it's trending on Twitter, then it's mission accomplished. Um, you're not going to get that by just releasing a trailer, you know, to Cineplex OD 
Nickelodeon or something like that. Um, so anyway, Dr. Lupo did actually have a conversation with Borat. It's quite funny. It's a video conversation. He released that on his channel. It was only 15 minutes long, like I said. Um, and so that's, that, did, that did very well. Uh, but I want to talk about this David Dobrik guy. Um, he actually has two YouTube channels, both of them with millions of subscribers. Um, so he did a video with Borat. I'm going to play a bit of it here. Um, it is a video, so obviously we can't show a video on a podcast. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens. I'm only going to play the first little bit. But basically, this David Dobrik is telling his friends that he has a special visitor coming over. They're standing outside, what looks like in maybe a carport or something, at his house. And David Dobrik has his car in the driveway with the door open, the driver's side door open. So in the video, he tells his friends, hey, I've got a visitor coming over. And then uh, Borat shows up in what looks like an ice cream truck, and he kind of smashes into this open door. Uh, so I'm going to play you a clip so you can hear exactly what happened. I wanted to bring you guys here today to introduce you guys to one of my friends. Okay. He flew in all the way from Kazakhstan. Borat? No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, <laughs> hello. Oh my god. There he is. Hi. Oh no. No. Oh my god. Oh my god. Back it up. Back it up. Back it up. Back it up. Fuck. Fuck. You got it. Hey. Hey, listen. I am. No, no, I think it's... If you buy a cheap car, you expect it? It's not cheap, it's expensive. No, this is an expensive car? Yeah, look how... This expensive car, this costs over $300. <laughs> <laughs> this is $150,000. $100,000? Yeah. This is worth more than whole of So, you get an idea here of... <laughs> this goes on, too. It's actually... Uh, parts of it are quite, quite, quite funny. So after this video was released on this YouTube channel, uh, it was trending number one right away. Uh, more than 3 million views, 29,000 comments, 480,000 likes. And that was in 24 hours after this release. Wow, that's crazy. Yes, it's now past 12 million views on that channel. Now, this, this kind of promotion, if they paid anything at all, and I think there's a good chance that they did not pay for this because, you know, often for these YouTubers, it is a thrill to have a celebrity come through and sort of over to your house or on your, on your podcast or video or whatever. So it, it's hard to say, but even if they did charge for this, it would not have been very much. It would not have equaled a 30 second sort of spot, uh, you know, during 60 minutes or something like that. Um, and so we don't have numbers yet on how the movie is doing, but the preliminary indication is it's doing, doing much better, uh, than, than Tenet. And I think part of it is this sort of way of, of marketing. And so, you know, the question here, Ewan, is like, what can communications people do then? And this is a process that I'm, I'm going through actually right now, sort of in-house at the company I work at. And really, it is about sort of identifying, um, you know, there are some tools, you can just go on Twitter and Facebook and click around. There are tools to find out like who is really talking about your brand a lot, you know, who's sort of following the news pertaining to your company or your brand, who's speaking frequently, um, these sorts of things. And you can reach out to them uh, and turn them into what we call validators, which I think I mentioned on a previous show. And it's not bribery because you're not paying them in exchange for sort of fake 
coverage or promotion. It really would be, especially for communications, like there's a little difference here between the marketing side and the communication side. But on the communication side, you could share with them maybe some statistics of, you know, a video game that your studio has made, or you can provide some, you know, investment numbers of something you've, 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 another company that you've purchased, whatever it might be. There are ways of, you know, sort of harnessing these audiences that have been built up over time. And like in the Borat example, it won't take much. It's not the same as buying those big ad buys. Um, it's, it's more, it's more focused than that, but these people, because they have big audiences, they're the, and if they're related to what your company does, that's precisely the audience that you want to reach. And that's why this can be so valuable. So sharing products in advance, sharing information, giving them a heads up, just little bits of info that allows them to keep their sort of thought leadership kind of reputation going and, and credibility with their audience can also dovetail with what a company is trying to do as well. You, you know what I find I find really interesting about this topic, Cam, is that to be an influencer, you don't have to be all of those things that we would associate with a sort of a traditional leader, like someone who's been in the industry for 30 plus years, um, you know, that's got a lot of gray hair, these sort of that that's appeared in sort of, um, you know, traditional media sources and is well published. Uh, I mean, all these sort of very traditional notions of, of things that get you to a position of being a, a quote unquote influencer. And, and I'm just thinking anecdotally, in the legal profession, one thing I found very, very interesting over the last few years, and this is something that young lawyers are doing, some young lawyers are doing exceptionally well, and that's right out of law school, they've decided, you know, they want to identify themselves as someone to listen to in a particular field, and they're spending a lot of time researching case commentaries, keeping up with what's going on in, in, in the profession, and they're tweeting relentlessly about all of this stuff. And very, very quickly, you can find that, you know, a first-year lawyer has amassed 15, 2,000 followers on Twitter, which I understand is nothing compared with the sort of level that we're talking about. But within the legal profession, to have 2,000 followers on Twitter is is significant. And the idea that you can do that now as, as a first-year or second-year lawyer with very, very little actual professional experience under your belt, I think it's a, it's a game changer from you know, the traditional notion of how our profession works. There's a confluence of factors kind of all coming together at the same time. And one is, you know, there's more media outlets now than ever. I mean, there's so many website portals. There's so many YouTube channels, you know, of legitimate news organizations. I'm thinking like Vox, for instance, those kinds of things. So there's a lot more out there. At the same time, a lot of the traditional media have cut jobs and laid people off. So at the same time, they're also understaffed. And so if you are, yeah, a, an employment lawyer or a lawyer in another field who becomes an expert at that, if you pitch yourself, these media outlets will often take you to provide comment uh, on news stories or on issues. And, you know, when I worked in radio, this is going back a long time now, um, you know, we had a professor at uh, Simon Fraser University in Vancouver who always spoke about politics. Now, there were a lot of politics professors uh, in SFU and at UBC. In I mean, there, there, there's a lot. But we always went 
went back to this guy, uh, Lindsay Meredith was his name, because he gave such a good quote, because he was so descriptive, because he had some energy. And I don't even know if his knowledge was better or worse than the others, but he was so good that we didn't even have to go far because we didn't have the time. We couldn't sit there and research these different professors and see who should we try and contact. You know, he was available always. We had his phone number and, and we called. So there's that opportunity for people. And then the other factor is just the fact that, you know, YouTube is here. Twitter is here. TikTok is here. Instagram to some degree. These platforms can give you an audience fast. If you're good at what you do, it can climb really quickly. And so all of these things are happening and it's creating this world where there's way fewer gatekeepers. And to me, this is exciting because you mentioned about you know, influencers being people who have been published a lot or, you know, people with gray hair, things like that. I think for sure they, they should still be influencers. I mean, those people should, should be listened to if they've got that kind of wisdom and experience, but at the same time, it doesn't rule out um, younger people who may have a certain perspective or a certain insight or a different kind of understanding. It just brings more perspectives to the table. Uh, and, and ultimately I, I think that's exciting because there is so much room for this kind of thing. And there's a lot of opportunities for brands to make use of this. I mean, step one is really understanding what's happening, what's out there. And then step two being, you know, how do you execute on it? Uh, and I think if, if this is ignored, I think companies now are falling behind if they don't take it seriously. Yeah. And look, we've, we talked about this many times in the show, the idea of, you know, you're starting a business and oh, I'll build a website and, uh, you know, I'll get on the Googles and then people <laughs> will magically come and, and start to support my brand or my product. I mean, we know it doesn't work like that anymore. And there are definitely rewards to be had for those individuals who are out there and ready to hustle, right? I mean, ready to hustle in non-traditional notions of what that what that means in terms of promoting your brand. And again, I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for young people coming up to to really, really maximize the potential of those those alternate you know avenues of promotion because they're able to think outside the box because they they engage with these products and have engaged with these products such that they know how to use them um and i think you know for for older kind of the, the elder states people of, of businesses out there they need to get with the program in that regard as well and if they're not able to do it themselves or it flies over their head then bring in someone that can help you with that you know and simon last week talked about um some methods and and things that that companies can do to try and get people in to sort of promote their brands in more non-traditional means you know, I never, I've never been a big YouTube watcher. Um, I, I'm just, I'm not a TV person to begin with. I, I much prefer, you know, radio or, or podcasts and things like that. I've always been that way. But I know that YouTube has been very popular for a very long time. And I know that there's YouTubers that are huge. I mean, they're bigger than Hollywood stars. And, and only in the last several months, and this is me embarrassing myself, have I begun to really sort of dive into YouTube and see what's there. And honestly, I've really been kind of blown away by it. There's a lot of junk there. Even this David Dobrik video, I mean, you can see he's just sort of a young dude, you know, partying and 
making sort of crude jokes and stuff like that, which is fine for a certain demographic. But if you're looking for something else, there's a lot of other stuff there too. There is a lot of quality there to the point where now there's a couple of channels that I have subscribed to. Subscribing is free and they just drop, you know, the new, new videos onto your home screen when they're published. I'm now getting important information from there and I kind of get excited if I'm, you know, if I have to have lunch on my own or something, you know, I'll open up YouTube and just say, oh, I'll watch this while I'm having lunch or something like that. Because it is good to know about. It's good to see what's there. Um, and it does help ultimately your company if you can harness that as well. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, you go first, Ewan. Cam, I wanted to talk about a record this ah, week. again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I try and sparse these out, and I know I haven't talked about one in a in in a few weeks. So, I, you know, I don't want to bombard people with my my music. No, I like it. Yeah, it's good. Um, but you know, I, I stream my music on title, and you know, we talked about different sources that I I, I rely on to find music. You know, I listen to a lot of Sirius uh, XM as well. Um, but title, my streaming app has become pretty pretty awesome at. Um, putting together these these mixes and i'm generally not inclined to listening listening to mixes cam i hate the idea of it i want to listen to a record from beginning to end um but it sort of happened by accident where a record finished and i had some sort of auto setting on where it then just started to play artists that were similar to what i was listening to and and that's how i sort of fell down the rabbit hole and stumbled onto this artist whose name is gabriel olaf's and i hope i'm pronouncing that i'm sure i'm not pronouncing it properly, but last name is Olaf's O-L-A-F-S. And the record is called Absent Minded Reworked. Now, I looked this guy up, Cam, because I was listening to one of the tracks and it, it sort of stopped me dead that I immediately went and listened to his record. And I've listened to it many, many times now. And I then went and looked him up. He's a 19-year-old neoclassical composer from Reykjavik in, in Iceland. He began playing piano at the age of five, and he released his debut record last year, which was called Absent Minded. And Cam, these compositions, they're, we're talking really sort of minimalist solo piano pieces, but they're really, really quite stunning. And his debut record, it, it seemed to resonate with a lot of other composers and ambient electronic musicians so Olaf's decided to sort of gather them together and help him rework that debut record and that's how it became this absent-minded reworked um, it includes contributions from Kelly Moran uh, Katie Buckley Bing and Ruth um, Masayoshi Fujita I mean just to mention a, a few and I understand that a lot of these are not household names to people but rest assured um, they are some of the best musicians at what they do and again we're talking about just really kind of cool minimalist neoclassical music ambient electronica really really lovely and the reason I wanted to to talk about this record cam is I think it's a really rare instance of a reworked or remixed album I guess that I think is actually better than the original. Um, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous record. It's something that can command your full attention if you just want to put it on and listen to it. It's also a great record to have on while you're working or cooking dinner or eating dinner or anything, really. It's it's soothing, it's engaging, um, and it's precisely, I think, the kind of record that we need more of right now. 
Yeah, that does sound good, Ewan. And actually, just listening to to a few notes of it for sure. I'm actually going to listen to this. It sounds like the perfect thing to have on. Yeah, when you're when you're home working for sure. Anything else, Ewan? That you want to share? No, that was it. What do you got? All right. I actually have three things, so I'm going to go through them quickly. Um, The first is I'm really late to this game. Uh, It's about that uh, gang, MS-13, which was a big deal back in 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, This article is from 2018, uh, and it's in ProPublica, and it's called A Betrayal. And I'm not even sure how I landed on this uh, again um, now, but it is a story I could not put down after I started reading it. And it is about a a 12 year old boy who was in a gang in El Salvador, came to New York city and ended up finding himself in the same gang in New York city. Um, and it's a heartbreaking story, but it's a, it's a long read. I don't want to give it away. Um, but I will put the, the, the link in the show notes, because if, if you want to sit down and kind of be immersed in, in an article, in a true story, um, this is a, this is a good one to, to, to read. The other one, uh, Michael J. Fox, Canadian actor, Family Ties. Michael J. Fox was on WTF with Mark Maron, that podcast. Um, you know, very interesting interview. Obviously, he's struggling with, uh, what has he got again, Ewan? It's not Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Oh, it is Parkinson's. Um, yeah. So he talks about that. And actually, he's a, he's a positive guy. I think that's why this is such a ray of sunshine, uh, you know, this interview. You know, he is facing a lot of challenges and and many ways life's been unfair to him. Um, but he, he, he's got a very, very positive outlook. And then the last one I think is the, well, actually, I don't want to say it's the most fascinating. I think all of these are good. But the last one is called False Labor, Giving Up on Motherhood. And it's in Harper's Magazine. And it's about Lena Dunham. And she will not be able to have biological children. And she talks about how that came about and what that did to her life over many years, over the last several years. Um, as she found out in, when she was just 31 years old that she she probably could not, she was not fertile. And it kind of put her into a downward spin. And it's, um, I think it's an excellent article to read. I think it opens people's eyes a little bit um, on that subject. And so it, it, it's a bit heartbreaking, but ultimately she comes out of it, I think, quite positive. But, it, but it's, a, it's another one of those long reads that you'll get engrossed into as well. Um, Harper's Magazine is a paid magazine, but you do get some free articles every month. So it should be free to, uh, to read. And those are my three, Ewan. Oh, those are great. And I love the Harper's Index. That was a, uh, a staple yeah. of my political science undergraduate degree. I mean, I don't know how many times I cited <laughs> reference things from from the Harper's Index. If if any of our listeners are not familiar with the Harper's Index, the at the front um, of each each issue, it's just a, a single page of incredible incredible statistics i mean just really disarming stuff um that is always jaw-dropping and always worth worth a read awesome that's it for this show we're gonna have a great guest on next week so you're not gonna want to miss that uh so i'll just tease that episode uh so join us i hope you listen to this one and the next one that would be great so thank you so much uh for joining us for episode number 33 do not miss a show uh please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or you can subscribe to us on youtube as we mentioned in the show a lot today uh or soundcloud and you can also follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram twitter and linkedin with the account name pr law podcast all one word pr law podcast and please sign up for our newsletter prlawpodcast.club prlawpodcast.club for you and christy this is cam mcmurchie light it up 
This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 